Welcome to Song Surgery, where we dissect hit records with the songwriters who composed them and the singers and musicians who performed on them. I'm Sid Holmes. Let's get started. What happens when you combine the force of rock and roll with the coolness of jazz and blues? The first rock jazz fusion group, Blood, Sweat and Tears, cobbled together by songwriter musician Al Cooper, best known for playing the Hammond organ on Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, the group's second album, Blood, Sweat and Tears, yielded three top 10 singles and captured three Grammys, including Album of the Year honors over the Beatles' Abbey Road. Horn arranger and sax player Fred Lipsius recounts BS&T's origins and how a new lead singer, David Clayton Thomas, helped propel their first hit single, You've Made Me So Very Happy. I grew up listening to Benny Goodman in big bands. So that's natural for me since I was nine, 10 years old. I'm basically a jazz musician, not a rock and roller. Although I listened to rock and roll playing tenor saxophone when I was a kid. Let's talk about you for a second. You began to play the clarinet at nine. Then you did the alto and tenor saxes in junior high, piano at Music and Art High School in Manhattan, Berkeley School of Music, Ron Metcalf Orchestra, which was a Canadian big band, correct? That's when I was a couple of years out of high school, uh, out of college. I only went to Berkeley about a half a year. Okay. It was a little, it was a little slow for me, not to be cocky or anything, but. Uh, I wasn't learning what I wanted to, and um, so I left. And shortly after that, I got called to play with an entertaining group. And I ended up a year or two later with a guy who used to room down the hall from me, next door to me, Canadian alto saxophone arranger like myself. And he was playing in a Canadian band near Toronto, up in Hamilton, Ontario. And he called me to play second alto and to play all the solos, saxophone solos on alto, and to write some arrangements. But that was the Ron Metcalf Orchestra. It was a big band. I started to write my first big band arrangements there. And that's um, where I think I got my commercial, in quotes, side of me came out. Because we had to play for a few hundred people on the dance floor. So it had to be like Sinatra-ish, you know, swinging. So if I was writing arrangements, I was one of a number of arrangers. They had to be good enough so people dance. It's not a concert. So you're trying to please the people, you know, so that's what I did. It just so happens that um, I was getting prepped for getting to blood, sweat and tears. So what attracted you to joining these guys and creating this group to create sort of pop music? What attracted you to this project? I didn't know anything about it. Um, Quick background, I'll say the way uh, spirit or God or whatever life works, you know. When I was about 15, I played a jam session at a friend's house in the Bronx. And the trumpet player was about 10 years older than me. And his name is Jules Columbi, very nice man. He was the oldest of three brothers. Bobby Columbi is the drummer in Blood, Sweat and Tears when I play it. He's a year younger than me. And I'm playing my alto sax. And he told his brother, you got to meet this guy, Fred. So next jam session, a few months later, whatever, at my friend's house, Bobby played. We played a couple of my tunes at the jam session. And that was the first and last time I saw him, about eight, 10 years later. Unbeknownst to me, Al Cooper and the original, before there was a Blood, Sweat and Tears, the rhythm section, Jimmy Fielder on bass, Steve Katz 
on guitar who played in the Blues Project with Al Cooper before Blood, Sweat and Tears and Bobby Columbia. The four of them were sitting, having lunch at a place in the village, New York City. And it happened, call it coincidence, that the waitress who I knew from playing up in the Jewish mountains when I was 19, a year or two before I got this phone call that I'm gonna tell you about, she was a friend of mine and she was a little bit into music. And uh, she overheard them speaking about looking for an arranger to work with Al Cooper to write the arrangements for this new band they were forming. Blood, Sweat and Tears was not the name yet. They just had a concept for horns and, um, and also to be in charge of the horn section. That, that's my two functions, arrange and be in charge, the horn section. So she overheard them and spoke up and she says, uh, do you know Freddie Lipsius? To me, that's funny. There's 8 million people in New York City, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and Bobby says, is he around? He's probably playing jazz or something, you know, whatever. He got my phone number and we had about a half hour to an hour phone conversation. Very friendly. We talked about when we played together eight or 10 years ago. And um, he told me they were forming a band. It was going to be with horns. And I'd get a chance to write for whatever I want, whatever style. You know, I don't know what the music was. It wasn't exactly rock and roll. It was a new kind of music to me. But it was happening underground, you know, with the Blues Project and other people. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know about this at all. This is in 67. I was 24 years old. I was playing on the road with commercial bands in a tuxedo and then playing some jazz gigs. So Bobby says, there's a lot of money here. So it sounded enticing. So I said, uh, I'd be interested. You know, I had nothing to do. And he says, let me call the other guys in the band, the guys I mentioned to you. I thought I'd hear from him in a couple of days, right? He calls me back in five minutes. Mm. He, he says, you're in. <laughs> and I'm going... <laughs> To myself, really? Wow. He must have said some good things about my talent. You know, I read this quote from um, Al Cooper talking about you. He said, Fred showed up at rehearsal a few days later, and I couldn't believe it. Sam straight, short hair, square clothes, the whole bit. Then he unpacked his <laughs> alto and started playing. And that was it for me. I didn't care what the guy looked like. He could play the effing saxophone and make it cry effing Christ's sakes. He'd never listened to rock and roll. He was a hardcore jazzer, but he had soul in huge doses. We used to force feed him marijuana and make him listen to James Brown with headphones on. He got the picture, and pretty soon we had us a rocking alto player. So anyway, he didn't force food me, force feed me that stuff. But um, we got along great. As far as I know, he had the connection with Clive Davis at CBS Records with the concept, whether it was his or not, to have a horn band. So I guess Clive, when they met, whatever, he said, you know, when you get this together, let me know. I'll check it out. I'll make a record if, if I love it, you know, which I guess he did. First album, Childish Father to the Man, Classical Elements. Jazz Elements. You guys threw everything but the kitchen sink in there. That first album reached number 47 on the Billboard charts. How did the label react to the reception that the album got? You mean the president? I honestly don't know anything about that. I, I wasn't a business person like most of the guys. Bobby Columbia and Steve Katz, who both became producers much more and responsible for a lot of choosing certain things. How did you like the first album? 
I thought it was great. Uh, a lot of people like that more. A lot of people don't like David Clayton Thomas. Um, to me, David was the only pop singer that I had heard that could do a lot more than any of them. I'm not saying he's better, just he could sing any style of music, like Sinatra, so not just pop tune. If you listen to Lonesome Susie, the arrangement I wrote, he starts out sounding like Artie Garfunkel with a high choir-like voice. And then in the middle of it, as I built the arrangement with the horns coming in stronger and stronger, then it gets very guttural, like uh, Ray Charles or Bobby Blueland. So he, that's why he's very melodic too, an incredible genius. He's very eclectic, David. And I've never heard him sing out of tune. All the gigs I've ever played with him. I don't know if he has perfect pitch. He's an incredible, powerful singer, but some people don't like his, they don't care for his voice. When I think back of rock and roll in the 60s, there are two voices that really stand out to me. One is David Clayton Thomas and the other is Gary Puckett. And oh, I don't know why I, I tossed them in the same category, but they're wow. very distinctive voices. Magical. He was just before BST, but again, not to put anybody else down, but David, I never heard anybody sing that way, that strong. He's got a very different kind of voices. He's chameleon-like. There's just something about his style. It just grabs your attention when you hear him sing. He just happened to have that kind of voice. Very powerful and very in tune and very listenable. Grabs you. Do you remember the first time you heard David Clayton Thomas? When did you first meet him? This was a sensational experience for all of us in the new band that was being formed. We had tried out a few different singers in a short time after Al Cooper left. We were trying different people that didn't work out. I think Steve Katz and Bobby Columbi had heard of him. He was in a group called the Boss Men or something like that. I think they might've had a hit. How many okay. singers had you auditioned previous to him? Maybe three or four. And one of them was the guy, I forgot, um, he was a good singer. He had a hit single. Uh, what's up? Happy Together. Yeah, he, he wasn't the right voice. We didn't know what David was going to sound like compared to Al Cooper. No idea. And so the night before, he came down from Toronto and learned... Um, I love you more than you'll ever know. Cooper's tune. If I ever leave you, you can say I told you so. If I ever And it was so strong. I remember jumping up when I was playing my saxophone, jumping up in the air. <laughs> Mm. A little little bouncing ball kid mm -hmm. on a uh, pogo stick or something. And we were all like looking at each other like, this is it. <laughs> it was so strong. It was incredible. Nailed the tune. They couldn't believe it. You know, it's like very exciting. So that was that. He was in and uh, he joined the band. And the next day when we had our first rehearsal with David to do other tunes, I was the first one with David to be at the rehearsal at the Cafe El Gogo where we played. Other guys showed up later, but he gets his guitar out and he starts to play Spinning Wheel, his tune. I didn't know it. So David starts to play. He's just playing. 
comes out, starts to play. And I start to pick up on the piano, the chords, because they were fairly simple. If they were way out, I wouldn't have been able to hear it. He didn't even speak to me. Nobody was privy. No one else was there to hear that. So actually what I wrote in my arrangement that's recorded with Blood, Sweat and Tears was actually some of the first things I played on the piano with him. So you've made me so very happy. That was a Brenda Holloway tune, reached number 39 on the Billboard Hot 100. How did you first hear of it? When I started arranging with Al Cooper, I'd go down to, from the Bronx down to the village where he lived. And I would sit with him at the piano and he would play whatever tune it was, his or some other tune he was working on. And I was like the apprentice almost, not, maybe not in his mind. And I don't know if he wrote music, but I had music paper and I'm good at that. And I would write down some of the things he was playing on piano. And he was just playing. I said, stop, Al. I said, that would be really nice for, you know, he said, what did I play? And I said, and you played like a G and a G sharp and you just caught it. And I said, show me that again. And I write it down. You know, I want the horns to play this and I'd write it down how I first heard it. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't heard it yet. I've only listened once before to the Brenda Holloway recording. I just listened again yesterday. He might've played it when we were down there, but I sat at the piano with him and he, we wrote the arrangement. I might've written about a guessing maybe 10%. In this arrangement, most of the arrangements I did with Cooper, which were a lot of arrangements because he left after the first album, I just filled in or wrote an intro or a little horn thing at the end or enhanced a couple things that he did. He pretty much knew what he wanted to do with all the tunes, whether they were his or not. The other thing I contributed, for better or worse, when he first sings, you made me so, you know, it's not on Brenda's album. I sort of mimicked part of the melody. with the flugelhorns, not trumpets, flugelhorns playing that. So that was my little thing, which is catchy. And then on the end, um, when he sings, you made me something, before the out, I added some of my own horn voicing. In other words, chords, that wasn't any arrangement. So that's what I did. The rest is Al Cooper. Okay. So at the beginning, the very beginning, what instrument is that? All the horns, I think we were all playing the same two notes. It's a trill, so it's played fast. It's just an F to a G or A flat to B flat. That's all. It's a trill. The show starts. It's like a fanfare. So I did that, being a jazz person, on the second verse of uh, You Made Me So Very Happy. I think he sings, the others were untrue. So I had Lou Soloff playing in a muted trumpet behind playing, improvising whatever he wanted to do. That was never done in rock and roll. Why is the trumpet using a mute? Because he plays too loud. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) It's like Lou, play softer. David's a singer, don't get in his way. So what I added 
to give you exactly what I did, like a lot of jazz recordings, like with the old singers, jazz singers, mm-hmm. back in the 40s or 30s, whatever, you listen to them, they have a trumpet player or a sax player playing riffs, little, when they're singing, the autumn leaves, I'm in between that, you hear someone in the background, not as loud as the upfront singer, the featured mm-hmm. singer, it was mostly big band, but the old singers, like Billy Holiday, they have people improvising licks, little fills, filling in around and behind the singer, sometimes to me getting in the way, but it was soft. Right when you go into the bridge, I love you so much, it seems, right before then, there's like a little flourish by the drum. Bobby just played a drum fill. If you had a thousand good rock players, they would have played a drum fill. I forget. You have two meshes before you go into the bridge. Like one, two. So the last thing, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. There's nothing. So you need to fill in and, and not bore people, you know? So you played a drum fill, something that leads in is powerful. Any drummer will play some kind of a drum fill, whether it's you know, whatever it is. Now the bridge, Brenda Holloway, you guys have that extended musical bridge. Who thought that up? It's similar to the way we did it, except Al had da 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 some kind of a slightly different dynamically. But the intensity is similar on both of them. And then right after that, instead of going back until you name the way she sang it, we went into the ba 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 up a half step to another key. That was a little thing that Al Cooper came up with. Like a drum fill, it was filling in space and being creative as an arranger, composer, arranger. Oh, absolutely. There's so many different elements in that song. Right when he says, I'm so glad you came into my life, the horns at the end, it sounds like the tempo slows down just a little, does it? Well, that could be dramatic, though, but I'm not saying it did or didn't. I never noticed that. And thank you for bringing up another point that uh, not to be condescending to my fellow musicians, but I noticed back on the section that I told you when he's when he first sings, you made me and the flugelhorns play, the tempo to me slows down. If you're counting strict time with a metronome, the others were one, two, two, three, four. It, it slows down a little bit. You made me so 
And then it goes back to the tempo. So the rhythm section, bass and drums, fell apart a little bit. Those were the days just around the time when people were using click tracks. So the time is perfect. So it's not human anymore. So you write in time and the drummer listens with earphones and plays click tracks. A lot of great drummers play great time, so you don't need it. But back in those days, and the rhythm section to me wasn't playing in perfect time right there. <laughs> But it still was a hit. It didn't matter. A good tune's a good tune. And it's like if you talk to someone, they say something a little that you don't agree with. If you like 98% of them, are you going to never speak to them again? You know? Yeah, because like when it goes to that, dun, 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 it mm. reminds me of James Brown. Mm. I feel good. He does uh -huh. that same thing. I got a It might have just happened, and in that place it works because it's dramatic. Bop, 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 bop. You know, it's just building. Totally naive. It just came. It's inspiration. That's all. That's part of the brilliance of the song. Well, thank you, because no one's ever mentioned that, and that sounds like what I did on the spinning wheel thing on the intro, which was totally unique. I think melodically, that's not exactly melodic. It's a rhythmic and melodic thing. And also, thank you for reminding me, on the ending, on the out ending vamp, where I played the piano, I wrote the horns playing something that I copied from a Laura Nero album that was done, had never been done in pop music, but the arranger, I forgot his name now, for Laura's first album called More Than a Discovery. The arranger wrote something with horns playing in mutes. One, two, three, four. It's a soft chord, so it's not really harsh like typical brass that you hear on any Motown stuff. And so I did the same thing. I had them play soft. It's a gentle color. It's like a muted sound. It would match a flute, kind of, not as harsh. It's like if you put your hand over your mouth, it's not as clear. So when you heard the tune and it was all put together and everything, and you heard it for the first time, what did you think? Honestly, do not remember. Because after we recorded with the horns, or with the whole band, a lot of times we recorded just the horns overdubbing after the rhythm section played the foundation of the tune, the rhythm part, and then the horns would add on. That was a thing that was done a lot. Rather than early rock and roll records, everybody played and sang at the same time with one or two microphones. <laughs> but things changed. Do you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? I only remember being in the taxi, hearing it. I was in the cab going downtown to the village, and it came on the air, and I go, wow. You know, of course, uh, you're excited. I, I don't, it was just weird. I'm a, a middle-class guy, you know? I wasn't a millionaire, or, you know, making a lot of money like we all did later on from being in the band for a couple, of, four or five years for me. Were you following the rise of the song up the charts? No, but I will say, and I've spoken about this in a bragging way. Um, I think we were 93 weeks on the Billboard Top 100 charts with our album, not a song, the second album, The Blood, Sweat and Tears, the first one with David Clayton Thomas. Also, that album was the first one, I think, in rock history that had three hits. I think it was off the same album. 
No one's ever done that before. I'm just letting the public know, you know, for whatever it's worth. Um, you don't think about that. I was happy being in a band, arranging, playing sax solos, the conductor, leader. There was no leader in the band, per se. I was leading the band, conducted the horns, cut off the band, you know, for endings or lead them on a beginning. But that's the way it was. We were very big, uh, bigger than the Beatles at one time. They were, to me, the Beatles were the greatest rock group ever, to me. Well, Michael Jackson, a lot of other people came in. But the Beatles did an incredible amount of stuff, musically, otherwise, movies and everything. Okay. You had three singles off of that album that went to number two. Did you follow that at all? No. We were busy playing our gigs. And like I said, I was happy to write my next arrangement, happy to be playing sax solos, sometimes unaccompanied in front of five or 10,000 people. So what did it feel like to know that, hey, we're rock stars. This album is really successful. <laughs> One of my friends, my mother was over at his house once, and he said, what was Fred like when he was in Blood, Sweat, and Tears? And Jack and I are very close. And my mother said, well, Freddie was always the same. <laughs> Meaning I wasn't cocky. I was embarrassed one time. We came back from a, a tour, a weekend tour or whatever. I came back to the Bronx. I was staying at home at a particular time where I grew up. And I had a limousine take me home from LaGuardia or whatever airport in New York. And I was almost embarrassed. I was making 100000 a year back then, <laughs> age, age 25. And I said, I hope no one sees me because I, I, you know, I was, you know, I was shy and didn't want to be showing off. I mean, a limo was really out of place. I knew you were going to say you were embarrassed. I just knew that. But you had to feel a, a sense of accomplishment and just you had to feel good about yourself. Isn't that what every musician is gunning for, no matter the genre of music? Well, um, one of the teachers at Berkeley College Music, this at least 10, 15 years ago, I had been teaching 20 years there. But we were just talking for a minute, and he was very mentioning something about blood, sweat, and tears or something. I forgot what we were talking about just for a moment. And he says, you know, we're all jealous of you, Fred. He's very talented. He's written a hundred more big band arrangements than me. I'm not talking about how good or bad it is, but just, you know, very talented. So I just felt, uh, I guess, blessed doing what I do. Did any of your compadres lose their heads? Yes. I'm not going to mention their names. Please don't mention their names, but can you tell me some of the excesses they had, they did, or how they changed? They're innumerable. <laughs> <laughs> I've never used that word in my life. <laughs> no, there, there are a few egos from my point of view. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We weren't really that, I'm not saying there were women, but we were not like the group that gets 500 women in, in a year or two or whatever, you know, I, I can't speak for anyone <laughs> myself, you know. We were a very serious, in quotes, band. We were serious musicians. It wasn't just rock and roll. It's just the way it was. I mean, uh, there were some drugs. Everybody was doing that. It wasn't, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into a big thing. It wasn't really excessive. But um, that's why I left the band eventually. A couple of people... I just didn't want to be around that. Not that I'm perfect. I'm not. Ask my wife. But just don't need that. Just 
be regular and treat everybody respectfully. Do you remember the day you said, you know what, I've had enough? <laughs> I don't want to go into it. I'm really at this point in my life, it's like a spiritual master that one of them that I've been studying with for 40 years, they said, when you bring out the good in another soul, in another person, you bring out the good in yourself too. If you're hanging out with the wrong crowd, whether it's drugs, this or that, or they're not into the religion that we're into religion and saying bad things about you and you feel bad, you don't need them as friends. He didn't say there, give them uh, the cross or to hell with you or anything like that. Just leave them, move on with your life. You know, you're at a different stage of understanding, spiritual awareness, that's all. Rather than put someone down and make someone sound like a jerk. I'm sure I've been a jerk to some people, you know, I can't speak for anybody else. I can only speak from my experience. There were people that spoke up a lot and I don't want to say controlled. We can use the word ego or whatever. We're all different, you know, and we didn't get along that great. Some people on the road, people didn't want to have breakfast with each other. The play on the bandstand was an incredible band musically, but some people didn't respect each other. For whatever reason, I won't go into it. It's between them. But in any project, if there's no leader, things are scattered and you don't get anything done. Even if everybody loves each other, it can get too laid back and it's like flower child acid. <laughs> I'm just saying, you need someone to say, no, I, that's not good. Let's move on. You know, I didn't like that solo. Try another one or blah, blah, blah. Let's not use horns here. You know, whatever it is, after Al Cooper left, I was going to leave. I was kind of devoted to Al, even though he was leaving. I wouldn't have a job anymore. But he kind of said, stay, it'll be good for you. Wins. Album of the year. Best arrangement accompanying vocalist. Best contemporary instrumental performance. Nominations. Record of the year. Best arrangement accompanying vocalist. You're making Best me contemporary. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Did you go to the Grammys? Um, I didn't go because I could not imagine getting up in front of millions of people or a couple hundred or a thousand people in the audience in uh, whatever building it was in New York City and accepting an award and speaking. Because when I was in school as a kid, I used to get red in the face, blush, embarrassed if I was called on. And I would say, please, God, I don't want to be called on. If the bell rang at the end of the hour, I was, thank you. It's time to go out and play basketball or something I can get away from. You know, I just didn't want to be called. I didn't want the attention on me. Now I love it. It's not oh. ego. I, I feel very free. Um, I'll, I'll just say this. I've been with spiritual masters that know the thought of every soul in the universes of God. Okay. So if you have an inkling of what I'm talking about, I'm not there yet. I'm studying to be like that, but not to have any power, just it's all love. So yes, I did something. I accomplished something. I worked very hard. That wasn't my motive ever. And maybe that's the point. It's the process. You should be loving what you're doing. It's not the end result of, of the gold record. It wasn't the most important thing to me. What was important was playing with a band I was proud of, being part of that and having the gift of being there, being able to do all these things. So it's not like I'm God and you're not, you know, but I'm in the category of very talented, whatever, if you want to call it, whatever. But I feel that... We were the chosen people to, 
out of all the people on the planet, a lot of greater interest to write for Blood, Sweat and Tears. It just happened we were picked. It was meant to be destiny, whatever. I said, I know I'm really good, but I worked for it. And there's a lot of other, there's a lot of heroes that I have that can do stuff that I can't do. There's a lot of really talented people. Yeah, but you know what? Not everybody who puts in the work gets the reward. So I'm fortunate. Yeah, I'm, hey, I'm very, I am very thankful. And I have, I feel I have a lot of good things to share with people out of love. Um, not to be cocky, to just be encouraging because I've gone through a lot of stuff. A lot of people going through a lot of pain, deaths, worry, anxiety. I've had stuff like that. I've been fortunate to have a lot of close friends. I have a sweetheart wife for 30, we just had 36 year anniversary. Mm, congratulations. I'm very thankful. I'm 77 now, retired. Looking back, sometimes because with the COVID thing and being out of not working for over a year now, year and a half, mm -hmm. I, I look back and I see myself, but sometimes I think I didn't do so much in my life for a minute, not really getting down myself. And then I say, wow, I did a lot of stuff that a lot of people didn't do. It's not really to compare, but if I have to share anything with anybody, I would just tell them, instead of looking up to Fred or to me, you know, look at your life, if you love your wife or your dog, or whatever you're good at, you know, be appreciative that you're alive because you could be dead in a, in a second also, you know? And I'm still learning lessons too. Check out more Fred music, including his farewell concert after 35 years of teaching at the Berkeley College of Music at the Fred Lipsius YouTube channel. And be sure to drop by his website, fredlipsius.com. That's L-I-P-S-I-U-S for Fred's books, solo jazz album, and the single you're listening to, That Inside Feeling. Like a voice so in 1969, You've Made Me So Very Happy reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and number 45 on the Hot 100 year-end chart.
like what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and check out the Song Surgery Podcast Facebook page for updates and discussion. Until next time.